so we're going to talk next couple of weeks about, about what the Bible says about marriage. Um, we want to, how do we do marriage God's way? And, uh, you know, because our culture is so changed, our culture's view of marriage has changed. You know, a lot of people would say, you know, um, marriage is just a piece of paper. Why do you need a piece of paper? But the reality is marriage is not a human invention. It's God's idea. The Bible begins in Genesis with a marriage between Adam and Eve. And it ends in the book of Revelation with a marriage between, between Christ and his church. There wasn't a couple of cavemen sitting around saying, me got idea. Me want to take that woman the rest of life. I don't know why cavemen would sound like that. But, <clears throat> but uh, uh, it's not a man invention. It's not some idea that we came up with. It was a God idea to work in us and to produce families that would produce children and raise those children to be productive adults. I mean, the, the first instruction God says is, be fruitful and multiply. So, so marriage is God's idea. So if marriage is God's idea, then we should see that God's word as the instruction manual for marriage. Would that make sense? I mean, we look at what the manufacturer says on, as, as how we should operate something. I mean, you have an owner's manual in your vehicle. And that owner man, owner's manual is going to tell you, hey, you need to change the oil every 3,000 miles. If it's bad conditions, maybe 2,000 miles. You can't say, well, I don't care what they think. I'll change oil whenever I want. Well, you can do that, but you'll end up destroying the car because there, is, there are parameters set by the manufacturer. The same way there are parameters in marriage set by the manufacturer. Uh, those parameters in the Word of God. So how do we deal with marriage? We all see marriage and our view of marriage through the lens of our own experience. If you came from a home, I came from a home where my parents had a great marriage, uh, and they never really fought. They squabbled a little bit about minor stuff. Uh, they never yelled and screamed at each other. They, uh, they never threw things or acted crazy. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they, uh, they seemed in every respect, and I believe they were, to be very much in love uh, all of their lives. So maybe you came from a great marriage, your parents had a great marriage, and they made it look easy. Then you got married, and it wasn't as easy as it looked, right? You, you were surprised how hard it actually is to stay married and stay in love. On the other hand, maybe you experienced a bad marriage or a divorce, either as a child or as an adult. If you experience that, even, even if you experience a divorce, your parents divorcing as a child, 
then your view of marriage, on the other hand, could be overly wary or pessimistic that you are fearful of marriage. We all know that there's a decline of marriage in our culture. We see it. I'm sure you've noticed the divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married persons, but today only 60% are. 72% of American adults were married in 1970. Today, only 50% are. But, you know, of course, we've seen, we all recognize this, we've seen an exponential rise in people living together. In 1960, virtually no one did. Today, 25% of all unmarried women between the ages of 25 and 39 are currently living with a partner. And by their late 30s, 60% will have done so. So what's driving this? What's driving living together instead of getting married? Because most of those people, if you talk to the people that are living together, they actually believe that someday they will be married. Their ultimate goal is that they want to be married. But they are not married, so, so, so what's driving living together? Well, fear of having a bad marriage. There was, I, I don't want to have a bad marriage, so I'm going, I'm going to take this relationship on a trial run, kick the tires a little bit, and, uh, you know, see how it works out. Uh, you don't have a bad marriage like your parents' marriage or like your first marriage, whatever it was. You have a fear of marrying the wrong person. Uh, and so, in a, <laughs> in, a, in a partnership, the I love yous are a coded message. When you say, I love you, you're in a sense saying, I fear you. I fear you very much. Because there's an underlying fear that causes us to stand back from commitment. Another reason is be economics. People live together for what are, you know, we can't afford. Uh, we can't afford to live apart. You, I don't know if you know this, but two can live as cheaply as one for half as long. There's really no... There's really no economy of scale that works that way. Convenience, we do it for convenience. But the reality is that the, the whole concept of living together to have a, a better relationship doesn't work. Statistically, we know there's substantial evidence that those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage they're more likely to not survive. And what is, why? I believe the number one reason is expectation. What if you think, we've lived together for this time, and we've worked through all of our problems. No, you haven't. We've lived together 43 years, and we keep discovering new problems. You haven't worked through all your problems. But that's the deception. Living together doesn't prepare you for marriage because it doesn't force you to make the changes to your character and habits that marriage requires. In other words, living in close to proximity to someone is, is life-changing. 
And it requires something of you. It requires you to, it requires some give and take. And because we live in such a selfish culture, we resist that. People who are married consistently show higher degrees of satisfaction with their lives than do those who are living with a partner. 61% of married people say they are very happy. Two-thirds of those unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if they stay married and don't get divorced. You understand what that says? And so even happy marriages will go through some unhappy seasons. Have you been through an unhappy season? No, don't raise your hand. That was. <laughs> How many are in one right now? No. Uh, <laughs> even happy marriages go through difficult seasons. But the reality is, here's what I would say about our, our marriage. 43 years. We've had a great, great life together. We love each other and we're happy most of the time. But as things have come up in our marriage and we have worked through them, there have been multiple times, if we had the proclivity, that we could have divorced or pursued other relationships. But instead, we continued to pursue each other. So in that process, sometimes we went to counseling. We've been to counseling a couple of times. Sometimes we went to counseling. We've been to marriage retreats. We've been to marriage conferences. We've read marriage books. I've preached marriage sermons. You know, we, so we, we really tried to work in our marriage, but we found when we had a difficult season, when we worked through that, our marriage was not as good as it was. It was better. In other words, we, we accomplished something. It was difficult for a reason. It was difficult because we had issues that we needed to work through that at that, this point in our marriage became evident. They weren't evident before, but life has a way of bringing things to the surface that you have to deal with. So 61% of married people say they're very happy. Two-thirds of those people will be happy in five years if they stay married and don't get divorced. So I would say to you, don't get divorced. Should you stay together just for the kids? Absolutely. Because if you'll stay together for the kids and work on your marriage, you may find out that eventually you'll be happy anyway. Children who grow up in married two-parent families have two or three times more positive life outcomes as those who do not. Marriage is better for your children in multiple ways. And marriage is better for you. You will live longer. You will live healthier. You will have more money. It doesn't seem to make sense. But, you see, marriage helps you deal with stuff. I mean, when you're single... One of the reasons why people want to live together and not get married because they want to, they want to maintain their freedom. You know, so let's say that, you know, I'm, I come home tomorrow and I say to you, hey, I spent all the paycheck this week. I bought a couple of new guns. I'd have to hide those guns because she would shoot me with them. 
I wouldn't do that. Why would I not do that? Because there's an accountability, and it flows both ways. There's an accountability about our finances. We, we have a, goals that we're trying to accomplish. And so marriage helps us in a lot of different outcomes. It really helps your children. Your children will have a better life. Uh, you know, and, and maybe you've had a divorce. I'm not trying to condemn you because you've had a divorce. We're not, we're, we're not trying to, I'm not trying to condemn anyone that's gone through divorce. But I, I do want to help you. I want to encourage you not to let it happen again. <laughs> Because it's, after you've had one divorce, it's easier to get another one. I mean, statistically, we know that. So, what's happened is that we're simultaneously expecting too much and too little from marriage. We're looking for someone, a soulmate. This is the terminology that's often used today. A soulmate who will complete us and fulfill us, but at the same time, not ask too much from us while they are in turn meeting all our needs. Does that make sense? We want someone who will, a soulmate who will complete us and fulfill us, but at the same time not ask too much from us while they meet all of our needs. And so this whole soulmate thing, you know, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to find the right person. We see the Hollywood model played out in this all the time where some of the most beautiful people in the world marry some of the most beautiful people in the world. They're wealthy. They have access to anything their heart desires. They're married for a little while, and then they're not. They have a couple of kids, and life is wonderful, and then all of a sudden it's not, and they've, they've moved on to the next person. But they, what happened is their soulmate all of a sudden quit meeting all of their needs in the same way. So they said, what's the r- rationale? That I must have picked the wrong person. I thought they were my soulmate, but my soulmate is my soulmate. My soulmate's the perfect one for me. And you know, I came home one night and wanted ice cream and she would let me have it. She's not my soulmate. She doesn't love me. And so we have this whole mentality that they're going to fulfill us and make us happy. We have to find the right person. The reality is you always marry the wrong person. That, y'all said amen to that really quickly. <laughs> it's like, whoa, yeah. Did I marry the wrong person? That is, the person you marry is not who you think they are. And you're not who they thought you were. Duke University ethics professor Stanley Howard makes this point. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. So, so what's the point? Why did God... 
make marriage so hard? Right? I mean, it, it shouldn't have to be this hard, but, but it is. And most things that are worthwhile are actually very hard to do. You know, you don't say to the, the pitcher who's throwing 95-mile-an-hour fastballs, why did God make it so hard to throw a fastball? You know how they're able to do that? They worked on it for a long time. So how do, we, how do we succeed at this? Why, why did God make it hard? Because there's some things that God is wanting to accomplish through marriage in your life. You see, God's long-term goal for you, because God's got a long-term goal for you, and his long-term goal for you sometimes interferes with your short-term goals. You know that? So his long-term goal for you is to be like Jesus. Our short-term goal is to be happy. God wants you, to, wants you to be in an earthly marriage that's going to prepare you for an eternal marriage. Or he's, he's using marriage. I, I say this, and I hope you'll understand what I'm saying. Uh, I've said this for a long time. God uses marriage to beat the hell out of you. I don't mean that he's going to beat you up. I mean, all of us have hell in us. We have hellish ideas and hellish mentalities, strongholds, and things that keep us from exemplifying Christ. And God uses marriage like he uses good friendships to hone us and to look more like Christ. He uses it to help us. Ephesians 5 verse 15. This is like one of the great passages in the the Bible about marriage. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Time is limited. You realize, everybody realize your time is limited, right? It's time, you know, look at pictures of Mick Jagger then and look at pictures of Mick Jagger now and time is not on your side. He sang it, but it wasn't right. They always talk about how those old British rockers end up looking like old women. I don't know why that happens, but it does. <laughs> they do. Therefore, but don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to, to, to debauchery, foolishness. I mean, we all know that people do stupid things when they're drunk. You know, it can sometimes be a dangerous thing when you hear this. Here, hold my beer. Right? Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, there's a better option. Be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You say, I like everything about that last part. That submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, here's what I, the the couple of points I want to make from this is that, first of all, if you have any hope of being a happily married person, you must first be a happy person yourself. 
and the happiest persons, Paul describes it here, are those who have put their faith in Christ. Those people who are filled with the Spirit and have the capacity to sing and make music in their hearts to the Lord. In other words, there's, there's a joy that's coming out of them. The source of their joy is not their circumstances. The source, the source, the source of their joy is not what's going on in their life. The source of our joy is Christ. Amen. We're singing and making melody in our hearts unto the Lord. And if you, you find that the music is draining from your life, what, you know what Paul says? Get filled up again. Amen. The problem's not your life. The problem is you're, you're drained. You've, you're not filled with the Spirit. Amen. You need to keep drinking from the tap for the living water of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep believing that. And here's what he says in Ephesians 3. Earlier, he's prepared him for this with good theology. See, the way Paul writes his books... He says, okay, this is what you need to believe about who you are in Christ. Galatians, Romans, Corinthians. And then the second half of the book, he says, okay, now that you believe the right thing, now you're empowered to do the right thing. You can have a great marriage. He said, I pray that, I, pray, I, want, I want you to get this. You got to get this. See, because this is what's going to fill you up. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray for you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know his love that surpasses knowledge. Isn't that an amazing thing? He said, I want you to know something that's unknowable. I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses your ability to know it. Uh, you're going to have a teaspoon, and you're going to be digging into this, into the mountain of God's love with a teaspoon. It's, it's greater than you'll be, ever be able to comprehend. But he said, he said, just keep digging because it's deep and wide. It's, it's enormous. It, you'll understand the love of God. And he says, What's the, what happens? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the fullness the measure of all the fullness of God. If you believe that your fullness is in Christ, you're not looking for another person to make you feel whole and loved. You see, if two needy people come together, it sucks. It's a vacuum. Two needy people who are looking for the other person to make them feel needed. What you need is two whole people who come together out of fullness, and out of fullness they can serve one another. What we're doing is we're asking a person to fill the emptiness of our souls so that we'll feel loved and valued, and it's really more than a person is capable of doing. It's a bigger job. It's a job that really only God can do. Only God can fill you with his fullness so that you don't feel empty. You need to understand. You got to get a hold of this. You got to understand how much God loves you. You got to understand the price that was paid for you. You have to understand what was accomplished for you. 
You have to change what you believe about yourself. You have to weigh the thoughts you have about yourself, not against your experience, not against your past, not against your hurts, but against what God says about you. You are a you have a horrible capacity to sin, but you're more loved than you can ever imagine. He wants to redeem us. Being filled and asking another person to fill us is more than we can do. I believe this. I've, I've, I've been questioning uh, something about marriages recently and marriage events. Because marriage events are getting bigger and bigger more and more opulent, more and more expensive. I mean, crazy expensive. And I began to, I'm thinking, what, what is, what's going on here? And one of the things that I believe, I believe so much money is spent on extravagant weddings to declare to the world, look how valuable I am. Look how precious I am. But when trouble comes, they won't spend $100 to see a marriage counselor. They'll spend 100 grand on a wedding and they won't spend $100 to get help. Amen. What? And you can come see me. I won't even charge you anything. <laughs> really, you don't want to come see me. I'm a, horrid, I'm a horrible marriage counselor. I'm more of a, you know, uh, you see what the Bible says here? You need to stop what you're doing. You're an idiot. And you need to start... <laughs> You need to start doing this. Your marriage will be better if you'll stop being an idiot. That's pretty much my marriage counseling right there. You got it. Stop being an idiot. Now, I'm going to give that to you free today. Uh, <laughs> because why, why not go to a counselor? Because if I go to a counselor, the counselor may say there's something wrong with me. <laughs> and I can't take that level of revelation. If I just divorce you, I can tell everybody it was your fault. They won't know. Nobody will know. So Paul says in verse 21, this is that, that was all introduction. Now this is a sermon. <clears throat> Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul begins <laughs> really a powerful treatise on marriage on that we should submit to one another out of awe, reverence and awe. Some translations say fear. It's, it's not fear like, oh, like frightened, but it's fear like amazed, overwhelmed. Being overwhelmed by our, we're overwhelmed by how much God loves us. Submit to one another because, because it's amazing how much God loves you. See, by biblical submission is, is not, the world has a weird view. When we, when we use the word submit, the world goes, ah, you know, they freak out. Biblical submission is not oppressive. Biblical submission is always voluntary. So in biblical submission, when you say submit to one another, uh, we're saying I'm yielding my, I'm joyfully, gladly yielding myself to another person. Just like, I don't know, if you, if you know Jesus Christ, you submitted your life to Christ. Anybody here have submitted your life to Christ? Okay. 
So this morning, did Jesus show up at your bed and say, get out of bed, you lazy fool. You want me to lay for church? I'm not going to tell you again. Grab us by the, <laughs> grab you by the ankles. <laughs> That's how I used to wake Tina up when we were first married. <laughs> she would not get up in the mornings. But now she, she beats me up regularly. <laughs> she, and I would throw the covers back and swing her feet out of bed and drag her feet out until she was, you know, past the point of no return <laughs> and then and drop her feet. It seemed fun at the time. I don't know. <laughs> that was probably one of those seasons of difficulty. Uh, <laughs> I, I just forgot, but that just came to my mind. I'm sorry. I mean, biblical submission is always voluntary submission. It's, it's not an oppressive submission. Hey, you've got to submit to me. No, you don't. It's voluntary. I submit to you out of love. We submit to the Lord out of love. Because he loves us. We can trust him. We know that he has his, our very best interest at heart. If I didn't believe Jesus had my best interest at heart, I couldn't submit to him. But I do. And even when things are happening that I don't like, I believe that he has my best interest at heart. I believe he's working all things together for my good, even if I don't like the things that are working. Amen. That's how biblical submission works. And this is not a unique verse. Look at this. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Romans 15, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And this is just the, the beginning. I mean, Jesus said that the mark of discipleship in Christ is our ability and desire to serve one another, to put other people ahead of ourselves. A servant is someone who puts another person's needs ahead of their own. If we as believers and all believers are called to serve, and if you haven't signed up, you need to sign up to serve. God uses service to help us grow. We actually grow in service more than we do in selfishness. Doesn't that seem to make sense? We grow serving others more than when others are serving us. I have observed, as a pastor, I have observed people who didn't know Jesus and didn't know the Bible come into the church and get saved. And in a couple of weeks, they started teaching in the kids' class. They didn't know anything. Every time they taught a lesson to those kids, it was the first time they'd heard the story. That person became a mature <laughs> believer with Bible knowledge because they, she didn't sit back and say, well, when I really know the Bible, I'm going to start serving. Because... She just started serving, and in serving, 
God prepared her. God enabled her. God gifted her. And it was, it, was, it was great for her. And God will do that for you. God wants you to grow. And one of the great ways to grow is to teach other people. <laughs> it challenges you to serve other people. To, even if, if they're two and three years old. You're going to think, because there's going to be one three-year-old in that class who knows the Bible better than you do. They're going to challenge you. <laughs> You've got the one little precocious kid who's going to correct. No, that's not right, teacher. So if believers are supposed to do this, if believers, as we believers are supposed to intentionally serve one another, how much more are husbands and wives supposed to serve one another? We are called to serve one another. You see, Paul is pointing out when he says submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, he's pointing out the number one problem in marriage. The number one problem in marriage is our own self-centeredness. The number one source of problems in marriage is selfishness. 1 Corinthians 13, you know, we read this often in marriages, wedding ceremonies, and most people don't have a clue what they're hearing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. does not boast. It's not proud. That's what love's got to do with it. See, Love is not a secondhand emotion. Not love is a feeling I think I feel that I never felt before. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love is something that's purposeful and intentional. Intentional. Intentional? Deliberate. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Which lets you know that love is not a woman. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry. You know, you, sometimes you just get a thought and, it, and you, you don't want to stop it. You just <laughs> I mean, you can stop it, but you don't. Okay. That's not true. <laughs> See, because the ability to constantly serve another person requires something. So we have to go back. Paul is recognizing this. He says, through love, serve one another. So what's he saying? Hey, but first, you better be filled up with the fullness of God. You can't serve someone else through a, from a vacuum. You need to serve someone, up for someone else because you recognize who you are in Christ. And from that fullness, from the fullness of the wellspring of Christ, filling your heart with his love, then you can serve another person. And I want to tell you that a marriage where you have two people trying to outserve each other is a glorious marriage. It's not just a happy marriage. It's a wonderful marriage. But a marriage where two people are complaining because neither one's serving the other one enough is a miserable marriage. So if you want to turn your marriage around, then you've got to realize that you're a part of the problem. And you have to see your own selfishness as a big part of the problem. You see, here's what happens. So you fall in lust. We call it love. But... Primarily, our initial attractiveness to another person is what? It's physical. 
So we, we fall in, some, in love with someone that we, that we are physically attracted to, and if we, if we are capable, we woo them into tricking them, thinking that we're nicer than we are. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we're able to win them over. We, we, when we say we love someone, that ooey-gooey feeling, that actual hormone release and all of this happening in the early days of a love relationship, it's not actually about them. It's about how they make you feel about you. I'm, you know, I, I, when you say I love you, what you're actually saying is I love you because you're prettier than I thought I was going to be able to get. <laughs> you know, I really thought I was going to be able to get about a six. I think you're a 10. And so when I walk around with you, a 10 on my arm, I think it, it makes me feel good about me. You make me feel good about me. I love how you make me feel about me. Okay? Then you get married. And everything goes good for a while. And then you begin to discover how selfish your spouse actually is. You, you discover that they're, they're not as self-sacrificing as loving as I thought. They, they actually have some selfishness about them. And what makes it even worse is you realize they have the same accusation against you. But of course you realize they're way more selfish than you are. Because we rationalize our selfishness. Well, you don't know what I've been through. We all have that. We've all been through it. We've all had struggles. And so we justify our selfishness based on our struggles, and we discount their selfishness because their struggles don't count like my struggles count. My pain is worse than your pain. You know, I've, you've heard this. Every mule thinks their load is the heaviest. Or dog-faced pony soldier. I'm not sure which one that is. <laughs> that's just crazy. I don't, that's just crazy. Okay. You realize that, and you believe that they don't understand your past, but my past, I'm hurt. Or my hurts. Or my job, my job, the stress of my job. You know, said the stresses of my job, the, the pain of my job, the difficulty of my job. Uh, my parents, my parents are driving me crazy. My life is driving me crazy. My situation. In other words, I've got reasons to be selfish. I should get to be selfish, but you don't get to be because you're supposed to serve me. But the reality is, is that we're both selfish. So we get deadlocked into a downward spiral of selfish behavior. So is there a cure? There is. Jesus said, you should kill yourself. <laughs> That's the cure. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. If you're carrying a cross, there's going to be a crucifixion. Somebody's, if, if you're carrying a cross, somebody's going to die. And you must say, well, I pick her. <laughs> if, if, if there has to be a death, I pick her. You see, he calls us to deny ourselves, to lay down our lives. Romans 6, verse 5. 
For if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so we should no longer be slaves of sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So, what if you saw your own selfishness as the heart of the problem? What if you said, it's, it's not him, it's me. It's not her, it's me. I'm not saying that she's perfect because I will acknowledge she's not. I'm not saying he's perfect. I will acknowledge he's not. But here's what I will acknowledge. You can't change him, but God can. You can't change her, but God can. And if you will agree with the Holy Spirit that I'm part of the problem, Lord, I realize that if I want to have a great marriage, I can't ask them to change. I need to change. Lord, I'm going to ask you to change me. Then you have the beginnings of a great marriage. The beginnings. Doesn't mean it's going to be great tomorrow at 3 o'clock. But you have the beginnings. All right, we'll talk about this again next week. Let's stand up. I got to stop. You're not dead yet. That's the problem. We have to die to self, die to selfishness, die to sin. Everything that the Holy Spirit reveals to you, you say, God, I'm going to agree with you about it. Everything, Lord, you point out about my character that does not align with Christ, that is selfish and stubborn, it's of the old nature and the old man, everything that doesn't align with you, I'm going to agree with you and say, God, I agree that I need to put away selfishness and put on a servant's heart like Jesus Christ. Father, help us to learn to serve the way you called us to serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.